14 through 23. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For to Moses he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who strives, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, so my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But you, who in the world are you, O man, who talks back to God? Well, what is formed to say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for common use? Now what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath designed for destruction? And what if he did so to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Thank you, Hillary. So, some of you were here last week, so I heard. I was not here, but uh, I know we've been in the, in the book of Romans. Chaim is uh, kind of coupled with our prior Bible study in the book of Galatians going through uh, these three chapters of Romans. And so if you did not hear the message, I did see, I think the last two weeks of messages are up on YouTube, so please avail yourself uh, of, of those. <coughs> so I'm going to go over primarily what was read today with a little bit of background. Um, the lead-in, the lead-in to what was read today if you're familiar with the beginning of chapter 9, is Paul um, lamenting over his fellow Jews, his fellow people, who have yet to come to, uh, to the Lord through Yeshua, through, the, same, through his, the beliefs that he has. And he lists out at the beginning here all of these things that the Jews have going for them, yet still are what he calls you know, lost in, in a very real sense. But he is very clear, and as he goes on, he's very clear to, to say that, even though that's the case, that not all, not all are lost. In other words, God has separated and God has spared a, a remnant, a portion uh, of, of his people, and that this is all according to, according to his plan. And he kind of, he supports this, he lays out some of the uh, uh, historical pieces of that plan, kind of saying this is how, this is how all this happened, namely that God preserved this remnant through, specifically through Jacob, uh, who God chose over Esau. But he's very specific also to say there, and I won't get into a lot of this. I've preached on this before, but he's trying to, he, he specifically says there that this is not because of anything that Esau or Jacob did, not because of their descent. They weren't even alive when this was, when this was decided in the, in the physical. They weren't even born yet. And the point he is making is that Israel's chosenness didn't depend on any natural descent or human merit. He's very clear with that. And therefore, then, on the flip side of that, we've got the fact that, in the same way, neither can Israel's disobedience nullify God's determined purpose for them as a people. So overall, in these, in these first verses of chapter 9 that, that were not read today, Paul establishes uh, the fact that Israel was the ob- was the, the, the 
object of God's choice for special blessing because of his gracious will. It had nothing to do with, with any, you know, wh- where they came from. It had nothing to do with um, their superior qualities. I actually read elsewhere in scriptures quite, quite the opposite, quite the opposite of that. And so we're going to end up going a bit back and forth on this today and maybe even a little further back in the book of Romans as well. So that's where we'll be if you've got your Bibles. We'll primarily be in chapter 9, but I might flip back to chapter 2 and 3 a little bit. Um, so we'll go back and forth, but the stopping point, I wanna, the short stopping point I want to make right here uh, is for us to understand that, that this, these things that I just talked about, this background, is the foundation for all people who put their faith and trust in God and His Son, Yeshua. Chaim said that last week, I'm sure. You know, we often talk about the fact that our faith is secure in the promises of God, and the promises of God are evident, most evident in the Bible to, to Israel. That's why we look at Israel, not because Israel is special, because that's the foundation for all of us who put our faith and trust in Yeshua. And the fact that our natural descent, just like he's talking about Israel here, um, whether it be Jew or Gentile, in our own merit, the things that we have done or the things that we have not done, the things we've yet to do. None of those things can add to, and uh, none of those things can nullify God's determined purposes, corporately and individually for each one of us. And that's the backdrop. That's the, what we call the context, the immediate context, at least, of what was read today. And it leads into a couple of questions. I mean, this section that was read, all these verses, really, Paul's handling a couple of questions. And then he, I'm going to say he answers them. Okay, I'm going to put that in quote marks, and at the end we'll see that, you know, does he really answer them? But he, he puts forth a couple questions maybe that, that people are, are thinking. It's called a diatribe kind of a conversation, meaning he assumes an opponent is asking a question, and then he answers it, and then he, this is what he does here. So the first question we find in, in verse 14, it says, What shall we say then? That there is no injustice with God, is there? In other words, all of these facts... All of these facts that he has just rehearsed here, all of these facts of history, they, if you look at them, they, they kind of seem very arbitrary, you know? Just sort of, this is just what happened. We don't see a rhyme or reason for it, and he's very specific. That it's not because of what they did, it's not because of where they came from, or anything like that. So they seem kind of arbitrary, so can't we conclude that God's ways are unjust? You know, has he been unjust from the very, very beginning? You know, even in his seemingly the evidence here is not helping me it's seemingly very arbitrary evidence so can't we say that he's unjust in his in his dealings with israel is he unjust in general because of that and the answer we see at the at the end of verse 14 is the emphatic no you know we've seen this other places this is like the most strong way that that can be said no in the bible says may it never even be considered is another way to translate it may that idea that god is unjust never even be considered and then Paul goes on to explain by way of example from the book of Exodus that, you know, God can do what he wants to because he's God. <coughs> but this is not about a, you know, might makes right ethic, you know, the strong, the way of the strong will pr- prevail and so forth, like, like God is a bully or something like that. And it's important that we wrestle with this concept because, uh, otherwise, this concept of, well, God could do it because he's God, we, we really put some thought into that because otherwise we end up in a situation where our view of God and our portrayal of God and his characteristics uh, could become very unflattering 
at best and just not accurate, quite frankly, uh, at worst. <laughs> and the point of these words from Exodus and the point of kind of Paul going this direction and the point of him highlighting those words here in Romans, uh, these are words from the book of Exodus that, that he's quoting, talking about uh, Pharaoh and so forth, is to testify to the freedom of God's mercy. And that's what needs to be recognized over and above his power, over and above uh, you know, looking, us looking at God in awe and maybe even looking at God in confusion with the way he works out things in the world. We have to realize that what's being highlighted is the freedom of God's mercy. And, and speaking about mercy, does God's mercy just mean that some are spared and some are not? Is that what mercy is about when we read that here? You know, earlier in, 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 in Romans, specifically in chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul tells us that God's kindness leads to repentance. That word kindness there, it's um, a different word, but the same idea as mercy. God's mercy leads to repentance. And that's what God's after. It's not so much that he's, you know, just choosing this or that, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but that's what he's after. And that is who God is extending his compassion to, not arbitrarily. He's extending his compassion to those who will turn to him, who will repent, who will do teshuvah. In verse 16, chapter 9, it says, So then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who strives, but on God who shows mercy. And uh, sometimes, you know, there, there's an all-important it there. You know, what is that it? And that all-important it is referring to the justice of God. In other words, it does not depend. The justice of God does not depend on the one who wills or the one who strives, but on the one who shows mercy. In other words, it's, it's, it's based on the fact that God's word does not fail. And the, the it, the question of whether God is just or not, again, we're gonna, this is being hammered in the text, so I'm going over what's in the text, but it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our descent. It's not dependent on our deeds. It's dependent on the repentant heart, repentance, which in a sense is a, a deed, right? But in a sense, but ultimately, it's dependent on God's mercy. In verse 17, even explains how God's negative actions, these things that sometimes seem negative, um, serve a positive purpose. And that's a very difficult pill, I think, for us to swallow, quite frankly. Especially, I think, in, in our day and age of, you know, inclusiveness and, and uh, tolerance and so forth, and what we think is good and proper, you know, and we'll talk, I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But verse 17 uh, gives this kind of exhibit here, exhibit A, or this example, talks about the case of Pharaoh. Verse 17 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up. And what is that purpose? It's to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now think about Pharaoh for a minute. And in Pharaoh, we see, a, I think, uh, inarguably, a, a great world leader. I mean, he was the, the leader of the known world at that point in, in the semi. He was a very powerful person. Uh, very successful. We see that, that image. We also see in that story, we know the story, that that amazingly powerful person is brought, brought very low, brought to their knees. And this is great for us to see, isn't it? We love seeing that. We love that idea that there's this great person thumbing their nose at God and brought to their knees, right? Very good for us <clears throat> in one way. But I think also it can also be very detrimental to us in another way. And let me explain. Um, I think for us, the problem can be that we see all kinds of great people in the world, even, even now. You know, we see successful people maybe we don't know, but probably we also see many people in our own sphere of, of, of you know, interaction. Friends, neighbors, family members, 
that we would say are very successful people, doing very well, very powerful in the world in a worldly sense. And maybe these people are antagonistic towards the Lord. Maybe there's, you know, um, maybe they're not even antagonistic toward the Lord, but maybe they're indifferent at best, right? Maybe for a minute you can think about somebody or some people in your mind. Just fix that in your mind for a minute as we talk about this for a moment. Someone like that, perhaps, that you think this is a very, you know, Pharaoh-esque kind of person doing all kinds of things, building a great community and so forth, but maybe has no thought to the Lord or is even, that's good for you kind of thing, you need that, whatever it might be. Think about that for a minute. But again, either way, that person, we see that the Lord doesn't seem to be anywhere on that person's radar, right? Pharaoh or the person you have in your mind. In no substantial way that puts them under, um, under God, Okay? God doesn't seem to be getting through to them. And, and maybe, there's a, this, maybe this is a person or people that you pray for. You pray for the breakthrough for them. We, we pray for a lot of people like that here at Yeshua Sion all the time. We just pray that God would, you know, get a hold of them. You pray that I want God to get a hold of them. I just want, I want God to get a hold of them, right? But here's the possible trouble I think we can get into if we're not careful. What if unlike in the case of Pharaoh, what if unlike in that case, we don't ever see that day for that person you've got in your mind. You don't ever see that day where God gets through to them, where it seems that your prayers are effective, and you know, they don't ever seem to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God like, like you have hopefully done in your life, right? We don't ever see that positive purpose for what we see as a negative action, an attitude um, in, that, in that person or people you fixed in your mind right now. How will you deal with that? Will it, will it harm your faith and your belief in God and his good plans and purposes? I mean, I saw some, you know, no way. And I hope not. But I just want to suggest that it might just do that. It might slip up on you. It might slip up on you that, you know what, I can see Pharaoh was humbled and that's the way it should be and I don't see it in the case of X. You know, and it could, it could, it could harm your faith and your belief in God. But I want you to remember what the text also tells us here is that the greater positive purpose of God is not something that will necessarily make you feel good or make you feel vindicated, something that you'll be able to look back and say, oh yeah, now I see why all that happened and everything's good in the world. It's, that's not the positive purpose uh, of God. Kind of like we can look and say, okay, the children of Israel, uh, it looks pretty negative. They're closing in on them. There's the sea. Ah, now we can see how things are looking good because the Red Sea's parting. That's good stuff. Or we can say, you know, things are, are good for me now that I've finally been vindicated professionally or I've finally been vindicated. My family has seen the, the success or the, 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 the fruit of me following the Lord or whatever, my friends. I've been justified in front of my family. No, that's not it. Regardless of what we see or we don't see, the positive purpose of anything in life will always be none other than what we are told right here in verse 17. It will be for the demonstration of God's power and the wider proclamation of his name. That's what the text tells us. Verse 18 concludes and summarizes Paul's point by saying, So then, he, the Lord, has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. The Lord will have mercy on he, who he wills and, 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 and harden who, whom he wills. Now, if you're not aware, this is part of a much larger question or debate you may have heard of uh, about free will versus determinism, um, Election, some say, versus God's, uh, you know, uh, election by God versus choice to receive God. Uh, maybe you've heard Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's one of those kind of arguments. If you haven't heard any of those, look them up. There's actually an argument out there. 
uh, about this, and this, these verses kind of pertain to that. And I'm not going to get into the full debate here, uh, because there's lots to it. There's lots, you know, questions about atonement and who atonement was for, and are you affecting your own salvation by accepting God and turning to God and all this? Believe me, I'm not going to get into the, the, the depths of that. However, we have to talk about it a little bit, because it's right here, and it's, it's very important. Um, this is what Paul is dealing with in these passages, in this passage. This idea of hardening people versus people hardening themselves. Uh, there are many other verses to look at in this debate, <coughs> but we'll stick with the ones that are, that are kind of right here and that are alluded to here. Um, in the Exodus story, if you go back to Exodus and prior to the Exodus, you look at all that you were to write down on a piece of paper, you know, make a column, you'll, you'll come up with two things. There'll be cases where Pharaoh hardened his heart, and you'll have cases where the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and you can write down the different cases, and you'll come up about even on both of them. I'll, I'll tell you that, but you can do it. I think it's good for you to do that. And so it's clear that both are true. It's clear that both are true in, in that example and in this example. In other words, sometimes God did the hardening or does the hardening, and sometimes Pharaoh did the hardening and the hardening. We can talk about those different words for hardening and what those mean and so forth, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But while we will never, and I'll, I'm going to say that, we're going to never fully resolve this question, this debate, we do see earlier in the, the book of Romans, I think, some clues at least to how Paul felt about this whole thing. Uh, in chapter 1, even in the very beginning of Romans, in verses 24 and 28, he says a couple of things um, about how God gave them over in the evil desires of their heart and how God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what is not fitting. You have this language of giving over. And I think that's a good clue for us, and maybe a picture. Everything kind of falls short, but this idea of handing over, giving over, picture, if you would, like a, um, like a small boat, like a rowboat or a canoe or something tied to a dock, and there's a little bit of a current, you know, and the, 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 the boat is tied to the dock, and you untie the boat, and you, you hold on to the, to the line there for a minute, and then you just let it go. Maybe even you give it a little push, help it out on its way, perhaps, Right? That's the idea, I believe, of God hardening a heart. The idea that there was something there to begin with, something that was tugging or something was pulling in the wrong direction, and at some point God, okay, maybe even, maybe even gives it a little shove. But I'll fast forward and then back up just a little bit. After all of those debates, okay, you, and you can maybe argue with that example or something, I don't know, but after all the debates about predestination or free will, you know, do you choose, does God choose? What we do know, there are some things we know to be true. And that is that anybody who is accepted by God, who stands in a righteous relationship with God, in other words, is, you know, we use the terminology saved by God, <clears throat> they are done so only by the mercy of God. And those who are lost are only lost based on their refusal to repent. That much we know. And Paul's message here which is supported elsewhere in Scripture, is that even the most righteous among us don't deserve to be accepted by God. There's no deserving to be accepted. That, that, that's, that's here and elsewhere. In verse uh, 19, Paul then begins to delve into the question, based on all of that, what he would see as the logical sort of, again, the opposition. He's having this diatribe kind of conversation. He delves into the next question. He says, you know what? How can, if that's the case, and if God's responsible for all things anyways, how can he hold us responsible for anything? Okay? And this is not some uh, question from antiquity, I don't believe. 
I think each one of us could have the same question, even in exactly the same words, but the general idea of, isn't it unfair of God to act this way? Isn't this futility at its most you know, egregious uh, place, right? Isn't it unfair for God to act this way? Now, our opposition to the idea that God may be arbitrary or that God may uh, be unfair or that you know, God wouldn't choose some to die without, you know, to die without him and then choose others to live uh, with him, you know, these simply don't fit with my idea of what God is like. You know? And you may hear that. You may hear that, and that's, that's, you know, I'll tell you where that probably comes from. That's, that's kind of the point here. I think that regardless of where we are on that spectrum of, of that sort of thought of are things arbitrary and is it fair and so forth, we're all, regardless, on the same path. And I believe it's the long path. I believe it's the sometimes difficult path. I believe it's the sometimes um, impassable path, if that's a way to say it. But it's the path that requires us to, to first ask, and then realize that we're going to have to continually ask. We're going to have to continually pray for the answer or the pieces of the answer to the question of where does my idea of God come from in the first place? Because that's pretty critical to these questions. If I think this can't be right of God, why would he do this, that, and the other? Wait a minute. Where is my idea of God coming from? Does it come from what I want God to be? Does it come from the the culture around me? Or does it come from what I would consider the biblical evidence, coupled with prayer, coupled with our experience of life with God? Maybe coupled with our experience of life with God versus life without God. And I don't mean just to take yourself to a place where, oh, this was before I knew God. How about a place where after you knew God and then maybe there was a time without God or times without God, you know? Because faced with these questions about God, faced with these questions about his character, and faced with these questions about how he operates, um, I think we can respond in a, in a number of different ways. And in fact, these ways, I, I was reading this morning, um, Parable of the Sower, it kind of reminds me, I didn't think about it then, but I think these kind of line up with a few of those, even though I have three and there are four types of seed, <laughs> I think uh, some of these apply. But I think we can respond in, in a number of ways. Number one, what we can do in terms of wondering how God operates, why does he operate this way, and it doesn't seem to line up with, you know, everything that I think to be right and, and so forth. We can, we can, number one, we could just put our head in the sand and say, you know what, doesn't make sense to me, but man, I got faith. I believe. I just know that I know, you know. And that can get you a little ways, I suppose. Um, but I believe eventually it can lead to frustration, uh, if you p- kind of put your head in the sand and, and feel that and, and go that direction, uh, it can lead to instability. It can lead to helplessness when you're just hanging on because, man, you're just, you're just as dug in stubbornly in, uh, as you can be. Okay? Another way to respond, which I think is probably pretty popular nowadays, is that of just ditching God altogether. Right? This is just stupid, man. This doesn't make any sense. You end up going your own way. You know, maybe you're that, that boat that, you know, drifts off. I think that's a pretty popular, popular uh, response sometimes. But the third way, another way we can, we can respond is to learn about God. To really learn about God. To really seek to understand his character. To seek to have him align us with his way of thinking. Because we're coming at it, we're confused perhaps because we're trying to line up 
you know, our way of thinking with him. It's, it's the opposite, you know, or you know what I'm saying. We don't need to line him up with us. We need to be lined up with him. There's a difference there. And if we focus on that third option, then ultimately I believe that what we see as problems with God, things like I just can't get over how God would do that. I just can't get over the Trinity. I just can't get over how God, how Yeshua could be God and how he could also be human. These kind of problems, um, you know, I think we could see those, those things in a different light. Um, what we see as problems could ultimately become, you know, virtues, these these mysterious things. We could turn those mysteries into virtues by allowing, in one case here, Paul's presentation of really what is the sovereignty of God to stimulate us in a new appreciation for the, the greatness and the, the incomprehensible purposes of God. God who is a, a God of mercy, God who is a God of mystery, I think it was spoken about a little bit today, and God who is a God of compassion. That's the message title today, by the way, if you haven't read the bulletin. That's where it came from. I'll say it a few more times as we go through. But that's where Paul heads in the remainder of these verses as well, kind of in that, in that general area, that specific area actually. He particularly draws attention in verse 20 to the fact that we, again, this is the supposed person making these arguments, um, questioning God's fairness and so forth, that we are but human and God is God, right? Paul says in verse 20, he says, but who in the world are you, O man? who talks back to God. Very sarcastic language there and very specific. You've got God and you've got man in that, in that sentence. There's a very strong contrast that's being shown there. The language is, is literally something along the lines of like, oh, really, human being? You feel comfortable just talking back to God like that? You feel comfortable just kind of bantering like this casually and, and so forth? Uh, and in turn, talking to God like that, do you? Human being, you do. And again, that's not a power thing. It's not, I don't want you to see it as a power thing. But it's in reality, it's a real reality that we need to digest. This is not something, that's why I said it's a difficult pill to swallow. This is not something you just, okay, God's God, I'm man, and that, that's it. I'm, I'm a human and he's God. This is a, a, this is a, a you know, a slow release <laughs> kind of a thing. Chaim often says it, if you've been around Chaim at all, he's got some things he says, sometimes he says a few things twice. Have you heard yet some of his quotes? <laughs> so... Um, He's, he can watch the video. I don't, I'll tell him. <laughs> but what's one thing he often says? He'll see, I've heard him say it in many meetings, you know, and one thing that keeps me relatively sane is that I know who is God and who isn't. You've heard that, right? Well, this is, there is a valid kind of a questioning uh, that we can make of God. There's a valid kind of a questioning that any child can make to a parent, right? But at some point, the information from the parent simply won't make any more sense, will it? And the parent just needs to be the parent and the kid the kid. Is that a power relationship or is there something else going on there? You know? I mean, my, my kids could, t could talk to me all day long and say, Daddy, I've heard you talking about this, this homeowner's insurance that you have to spend money on and can we just use that money to go to Disneyland or something? <laughs> I mean, why do you need, you know, well, homeowners, it's just, that's, you know, a couple months of that or whatever. We can just go to Disneyland and and I could take time and explain to them why we need homeowners insurance and what could happen and da da da. But at some point, are they going to get it? No, they're just, at some point, they're just not going to get my explanation, right? Will they ever? Someday. Someday, yeah. But it will be a while. And more importantly, they're going to learn a lot of stuff in the meantime, right? 
I think that's kind of the picture there too. This contrast between God and human in verse 20, uh, I think is also the clue to the, the thorny mystery of free will versus determinism. In other words, you know, there is an answer to that question. Do you know that? You probably all know the answer already, right? The answer to this big thorny dilemma. The answer is, is that they're both true. Right? God chooses and we choose, right? You knew that. I got that right on my seminary test. That was the correct answer. It was D, all of the above. <coughs> so I passed. That's why I'm here. <laughs> it wasn't in your class. That was in Dr. Blomberg's class. I had to parse verbs and all kinds of stuff for your that test. Thank you. <laughs> but Chaim, I got that A- minus in your class. You know, that was, that's, that's, a, that's a sore, that's a sore, sore spot. My bibliography, it, was, it just came off. It was, I had one. The staple was missing. I, the page was there. He lost the pages. My fault? God. Oh, uh-uh. But again, they're both true. And understanding that there is God and there is us helps us to accept that mystery. Helps us to accept that we can say, oh, they're both true. But still, you know, you've got to accept that mystery. And I think that's part of it. Can we comprehend God's ways? You know the answer here, yes. I was waiting for John Kuhn to say no and no, because it's yes and no. I counted on that. But yes and no, we can, we can comprehend God's ways. Any of our judgment, though, however, will ultimately be tainted, whether it be our view of mercy, whether it be our view of justice, whether it be our view of righteousness, whether it be our view of whether or not God could possibly you know, change course at any time, change his mind perhaps. But the deficiency is that our analysis of any of those things are based on our human understanding of those things, our human, our human understanding of mercy, our human understanding of judgment, righteousness, and the changing of one's mind. In whatever way God exhibits those characteristics or does those things, they are light years away from the way we do them. So, so judging God is simply just out of line for us. We're not impartial like God is. We are ultimately tainted by our own sin-affected wisdom and judgment, no matter how great we think our wisdom and judgment is. In the rest of the verses here in, in, in this, what was read today, talk about the right of a potter over the clay. You know, can't the potter do what they want to the clay? Wouldn't it be silly for the clay to say, oh, I want this, want you to do this or that with me and so forth? And th- I'm going to read verses uh, 21 and following, or 21, the end of 21, <coughs> and, and after that, we call this 21B. You don't see a B in your text, but the commentators always say, in 21B, I'm like, well, where's the B? I don't see the B. Just, just say just the latter half of the verse or something. Um, it says, will what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for common use? Now, what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath designed for destruction? And what if he did so to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Okay, so... Me, you, you know, I'm a lump of clay. Is that what we're saying? I'm just a lump of clay. And one who may or may not be made into something worthwhile, or worse yet, something that will be just made for destruction. I mean, is that, again, back to that question. Is that, all, is that kosher? Is that cool? <laughs> I mean, shouldn't God want to save everyone? Again, let's take a step back here. We're not going to untangle all of this, but let's consider, if, I want to consider a few things that, that are being said here. And also, by default, a few things that are not being said here. 
Okay, so some things I think are assumed and some things are, yeah, are assumed. <laughs> so verse 21, I want to point out that both things done with the clay are for a purpose. Both things done with the clay are for uses, if you will. Okay? In other words, he doesn't say that he makes one thing destined for the trash, although we think he might say that. It doesn't really say that. Just different uses. Okay? Even the object of his wrath, and this is, this is arguable, debatable, but it says that they are prepared for destruction. I think pregnant in those words, prepared, uh, is the idea that it's, it's left open for God's mercy. You know? It doesn't say that they are um, destined for destruction. They are sentenced to destruction. It says they're prepared, prepared for destruction. Remember, God is merciful. Did Pharaoh repent? <laughs> Could he have repented? Oh, boy. Oy vey, right? Let's talk about that now. <laughs> I will give you one verse to, to consider. Um, I, I don't, I mean, we don't have, we don't have the text. This is, this is the, the area of speculation. But again, anything speculative, we go to the character of God. That's what we're talking about here. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, I have, not, I, have no, or I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. I'll leave that there for a minute. So you have those things in this verses 21. Here. You have these, these things that are made for um, your translation. I think what was read was noble purposes. You have something along those lines. Uh, you have things that are made for noble purposes. Uh, in other words, they are, they are appreciated for their, their beauty, perhaps, or their, their decorative function, if you will, uh, their decorative aspects to them. And then you have those things made for common use. In other words, they are maybe, maybe not admired in the same way as the noble things. However, uh, I would argue that they are probably even likely more essential, even more essential than the noble things. Now, either way, they have their purpose. That's what we talked about. These things have their purpose and uses, and they are made by the Creator. They are made by God, and God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mystery. God is a God of com compassion. You forget that. Just turn the inside cover of your bulletin. Even just a simple illustration of that, I think. Think for a moment of your, uh, what we call your dominant hand, your dominant arm, for example. Maybe you're right-handed if you're very fortunate. You're a right-handed person. <laughs> I've got good left-handed jokes for you guys to come back at me with, but I won't bring them up because I'm not. But anyways, let's assume for a minute that your dominant arm versus your other arm, um, unless you're fully ambidextrous, I think all the things you can do that are noble, you can make a fancy signature perhaps, or maybe you can draw really well, or maybe you can, you know, take out your keys and, you know, work it into a lock and that kind of thing, right? Fine motor skill kind of stuff, very noble things. But take away your mundane arm for a minute, the one that holds the paper while you do those fancy things with your right hand, the one that holds like nine, you know, a, a, a big case of water while you're doing the door, whatever it might be. You're, you're often, we call this your static arm, often you're really your stronger arm. I used to think it wasn't, but quite frankly, it's got more endurance and strength than your, your fancy arm, you know. Take that away for a minute. Take away that mundane vessel, common vessel, and see what happens. Again, you can't do those delicate or beautiful things if your stability arm is not working. Now, Paul's illustration is not the picture, again, of determined destruction for some and determined mercy for others. I don't believe it is. And again, that's borne out by other places in, in Scripture as well and other things he says specifically. And even though I said we, want to, we don't want to judge and so forth, I do think it is an odd thing 
that a potter would just make something simply to destroy it, right? Simply for that express purpose. Paul says earlier in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, he says, But you, O man, it's kind of the same language we're reading here in verse 21, but you, O man, judging those practicing such things, yet doing the same, he's talking about all kinds of ugly stuff there in this chapter. He says, Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you, do you belittle the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Again, the same kind of words being used in verse 20, uh, the, the, the delineation of, of who God is that we see here. And the idea that the road to repentance, again, starts with the realization that we all fall short, all have, all have fallen short, and that God is merciful, right? He's a God of mercy, mystery, and compassion. In my opinion, this, this section here, maybe it's a breeze for you, I don't know. But I think these are some tough passages to digest, primarily because we, we just can't simply figure them out and then move on. And for some of us, that's harder than others. You know, Maybe not. Maybe some of us, it's very easy just to, to, to digest them and move on. But some of us, we just can't figure them out. We can't just, boom, read them, got it, move on. We've got to take time with God. We've got to take time in the ups and in the downs and the twists and the turns and those twists and turns in our lives and the ones in the lives around us. I mean, it was mentioned today. We've seen a lot. I don't want to you know, draw too many highlights to what's been going on. We've got a lot of people that we've been praying for lately. Lots of twists, lots of turns, lots of ups and downs, you know, with people in our congregation or people that, that we know. And uh, we've got to take time with God to, to, I said not to make sense of all this, but to except that he is still what we read about here and that it makes sense and that it is just and it's fair and, and all that kind of stuff. And if we insist on all things, you know, lining up with our values, we're just going to get off track. It must be the other way around, as I said. We must line up ourselves uh, with God. Because if we insist on receiving just treatment, right, from God, then we're going to get um, what it says in, in chapter 3, verse 23. It's just going to lead to our very own condemnation if we try to line things up with ourselves. Again, it says in verse 23 of chapter 3, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is, is that in Scripture, God's mercy is always emphasized. I mean, there's also judgment. We've got both. And can we unravel how this all works? No, we can't. But at its core, the way to be prepared, I think, for that, the way to be prepared for this picture of mercy, this picture of judgment and God doing it somehow in some way we don't understand, I think we find the, at least an answer in chapter 3, verses 25 to 26. It says there, it says that God set forth Yeshua as an atonement through faith in his blood to show his righteousness in passing over sins already committed. Through God's forbearance, he demonstrates the righteousness, I'm sorry, he demonstrates his righteousness at the present time that he himself is just and also the justifier of the one who puts their faith or puts their trust in Yeshua. And simply put, that's the way to unravel this mystery, I believe. The way to be prepared for life and for the life after is by putting your faith and trust in Yeshua. Most of you probably know that already. And there's really no need to worry after that but to just trust in both his mercy and his judgment. And sometimes, again, that's a hard one because ultimately it is a paradox. And we hold on to both. In other words, we hold on to the fact that God chooses and he's just in doing that. And we also choose him. 
And that's his mercy, and that's his grace, and that's what he extends to us. In our example here, Paul, you know, if we look to Paul for the answer, that's why I put, you know, answer in quotation marks earlier, because Paul doesn't really give us any nicer answer than that, does he? He really doesn't give us any nice, clean answer, you know. But what he does do, and I think if you, if you read this and, and look at this again, you, and you read Paul's words, what he does do is he, he confidently holds on to both sides of that, unequivocally, of that apparent paradox. He holds on to both sides, and he focuses us, focuses us towards the, the ultimate and the only practical solution to all of this, which is coming humbly to God through Yeshua, the Messiah. Because that, that path, regardless of you know, anything else, like I said at the outset, that path is not closed to anyone. It's not, because God is a God of mercy and a God of mystery and a God of compassion. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you. We thank you for our ability to gather together and to glean the life and the goodness that you have preserved for us in your word, Lord. We thank you that even when faced with these, you know, these and other thorny questions of life, and other challenges of life, Lord, that you tell us that the answer is simple. It really is simple. That that answer is to repent and turn to you. And that you will do your part in turning to us, Lord. Even if you've let go of us, doesn't mean you're not still there. You're not still available as we turn to you. And I pray, Lord, that these verses that we, we looked at today will not just pass us by. That we would meditate on them and we would receive them into our hearts and minds as an understanding that you are a God who cares for us, a God of mercy and compassion, Lord. And I pray that each person here today and each person hearing this message, wherever they may be, Lord, would realize that the only step they need to take is the one towards you and the, the accepting, atoning sacrifice of Yeshua and acceptance of that, Lord. Because for everyone who calls upon your name, Lord, will be saved. It's in Yeshua's name that I pray. Amen.